Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verses 18 to 19 this morning. Uh, we're, it's about page, uh, it's 1010 in the Pew Bible. We are nearing the end of Hebrews. And this morning, uh, we turn again to the theme of Christian leadership. Uh, we've seen here at the end uh, that the writer turns our attention uh, to how Christians ought to relate to their spiritual leaders, both from the past, we saw at verse 7, and our present spiritual leaders at verse 17. At verse 7, you may remember that he said, remember those who spoke the word of God to you, looking back upon past leaders, and, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's how you relate to those past leaders among you. In verse 17, he says, obey them and submit to them, speaking of their present leaders. So what he's doing is he's talking about our Christian responsibility to leaders. And in doing so, he's reminding us of the nature of their ministry among us, a ministry of both teaching and governing. I mean, think of it. They taught to us the word of God, he says, verse 17. They spoke that word to us, not the opinions of men, but the very words of God. And not only did they teach with word, but they taught in life. They set before us an example that we should imitate uh, in, in faith and in deed. So they were teaching, but they were also governing. This is what leaders do in the church, verse 17. They keep watch over our souls. As those who will give an account, he says. Now we looked at that uh, last uh, two weeks ago or so. Now the writer on the same subject says, I want you to not only listen to the word that they speak to you, the word of God. And I want you to not only to imitate their faith and even obey them and submit to them where appropriate as we discussed. But I want you to pray for them. And that's the subject this morning in verses 18 and 19. I want you, he says, to pray for your leaders. So let me invite you to consider that subject from God's word and to hear it. Give your attention to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 18 and 19. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. And Father, this is your word. And so uh, be our teacher. And by your spirit, apply this word to our hearts and transform us by the renewing of our minds and change even our attitudes and our actions in Jesus name for his glory. Amen. Pray for us, he says, and then he tells them what to pray for. And so he tells us what we should do. We should pray. 
And in doing so, he tells us what ought to be important for us, the things that he asked for prayer for. In other words, what's on his heart? That's what he wants on our heart. This is what he says is important for us as leaders in the church, as pastors in the church. This should be important to you as well. So this is what I want you to pray about. And so even as we are instructed to pray, we learn what pastoral ministry is about. And so let me invite you to consider both those subjects. And here's the outline. We learn about pastoral humility. You need to pray for us, he says. And we learn about pastoral integrity. We need you to pray concerning our godliness. And then we learn about pastoral proximity. We need you to pray for our shared life together. Let me walk you through those three things. In the first place, pastoral humility. Your spiritual leaders need you to pray for them. Pray for us, he says. And do you know why? Because pastors are people too. You can write that one down. Pastors are people too. Leaders are not gods. Leaders are not lords. And they ought not be lordly in their position. They are not all sufficient. We are all weak in many ways. And in ministry, it's not enough for us to pray for ourselves, those who are doing the ministry. And it's not even enough that Jesus always lives to intercede for us in the church. We also, he says, need to intercede for one another. Now don't misunderstand me. You may have heard me say something that made you cock your head a little bit. To be sure, his intercession is sufficient for the salvation of our souls. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, we've looked at this passage previously, says consequently he, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you understand what he's saying? Should the whole world stop praying for you, should not a single other Christian ever pray for you, your soul is safe in Jesus because he always lives to intercede for you. He holds on to you. Nobody can snatch you out of his hand. He never sleeps on the job. But for the work of ministry, it is not enough to say, Jesus always lives to intercede, so we don't need to do anything. The writer says you need to intercede too. Pray for us because we need prayer. Because we need the Lord. Why? Because we are made of the same stuff as those we serve. Right? We have sins, weaknesses, limitations, blind spots. All of us have all sorts of problems, just like everybody else. That's true of all the elders in this church. That's true of your pastor. Now, God's people don't always believe that. Some of you who know me well have no trouble at all believing what I just said about the weaknesses and sins and failures of people in leadership. But others of you think much too highly of the spiritual progress and power or ability of spiritual leaders. And so you don't pray for them. Or maybe you think too little of prayer. 
I read a humorous job description of a pastor uh, this last week as I was thinking about this subject. It's entitled The Perfect Pastor. The perfect pastor, it says, preaches exactly ten minutes. He condemns sin roundly, but never hurts anyone's feelings. He works from 8 a.m. to midnight, and he's also the janitor. The perfect pastor makes $40 a week, but he gives 30 of it back to the church. He's 29 years old with 40 years of experience. He has a burning desire to work with the teenagers, and he spends all of his time with the senior citizens. He makes 10 home visits a day and is always in his office to be handy when you need it. He never misses any meeting of the church organization, and he is always busy evangelizing the unchurched. The perfect pastor is talented, gifted, scholarly, practical, popular, compassionate, understanding, patient, level-headed, dependable, loving, caring, neat, organized, cheerful, and above all, humble. Well, there you go. You obviously have, at Redeemer, the perfect pastor. I mean, 29, 40 years experience? No, you don't. Of course you don't. Pray for us, he says. And speaking for myself, and I'm sure speaking for all the elders here at Redeemer, I am in way over my head. You understand that? I don't have all the answers that I need to pastor this church. I didn't write the Bible. I do seek to study it, to try to explain it, try to illustrate it, try to apply it. But I am certainly not infallible that. And as Peter said of the Apostle Paul, some things that he wrote are hard to understand. And we all find that to be the case in places And I don't know enough to guide everybody through their complex personal problems. Sometimes all I know to do is to say, Lord, help. Lord, have mercy. Lord, rescue your people. And then, of course, sometimes I'm too obtuse or too proud or too lazy to even do that. How about you and your praying? Do you have trouble praying? You're in good company. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist pastor in a congregation of thousands in the 1800s, he once wrote this about his own struggles. I usually feel more dissatisfied with my prayers than I do with anything else. Now that's from a guy who is one of the most respected and revered pastors in the English-speaking world, who was known for his praying, loved prayer, preached over 100 sermons on the subject of prayer, and he actually prayed, and he said, I'm pretty dissatisfied with my praying. You're in good company if you're dissatisfied with yours. Do you have trouble praying? What should you do? A woman went to Andrew Murray with the problem of feeling she couldn't pray, and he said this, Why then do you not try this? As you go to your inner chamber, however cold and dark your heart may be, do not try in your own might to force yourself into the right attitude. Bow before him and tell him that he sees in what a sad state you are and that your only hope is in him. Trust in him with a 
childlike trust, to have mercy upon you and wait upon him. In such a trust, you are in a right relationship with him. You have nothing. He has everything. Do you see? He he knows your heart. He knows your prayerlessness. And he who always lives to intercede for you can help you pray. But you can't pretend or you'll just simply go through the motions. Your help for praying is in the God to whom you pray. Now maybe you don't pray because you don't think it matters whether you pray. And you are wrong if you think that. It matters. The writer thinks it matters. That's why the writer of the Bible says Pray for us, right? He believes in the sovereignty of God. He believes Jesus is exalted over all things, always lives to intercede for us, and yet he says, please pray for me. Your prayer matters. There's a wonderful little book by one of my seminary professors, Doug Kelly. It's called, If God Already Knows, Why Pray? In which he says the reason we pray is because God has appointed prayers as the prime means by which he accomplishes his purposes. That's why we pray to a sovereign God. You might say, well, why can't he just handle it on his own if he's sovereign? He is sovereign, after all. And yes, he is. And it's because he uses and chooses to use, as a means of accomplishing his purposes, the prayers of his people. He invites us to share in his own ministry, to be participants in that ministry. The God who appoints the end also appoints the means to the end. And we ask the question, if God is sovereign, why evangelize? Why send missionaries throughout the world? Why doesn't God just evangelize them and God just be the missionary? Because God has said, go. God appoints people to share good news with other people. It's the means by which he does accomplish his sovereign saving purpose. So likewise with prayer. You're invited. Do you see that? You're invited to share in the ministry of God. And here by praying for those in leadership. One of the uh, qualifications of church leadership is you don't des- you know you don't deserve to be in church leadership and you know you aren't competent for church leadership that you aren't sufficient for these things in yourself you know your only hope is Jesus the only hope of God's people is Jesus the only hope of the lost is Jesus the only one who can build up the church is Jesus and yet he uses his people and so You covet the prayers of God's people for yourself. That's pastoral humility. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second concerns pastoral integrity. Pray for your leaders to act honorably with a clear conscience. Now listen to the way he, he states things here at verse 18. Pray for us, he says, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Now listen, if we're called to obey leaders and submit to them, which was verse 17, and we are, and if uh, failing to do so is of no advantage to ourselves, and it isn't, then we certainly want godly leaders to follow if we're actually going to obey and submit to them. 
And he's confessing, as the writer here, that as far as he knows his own heart, he has been teaching the truth and living a godly life and caring for their souls. His conscience is clear about things. He isn't saying he's a sinless man or a perfect pastor. But he has spoken to them the truth. He hasn't held back, of course, across the book. He has told them you need Jesus and Jesus only to be saved. And if you reject him or flee from him or turn from him or even drift away from him, you're in danger. So he's been very honest. His conscience is clear. He's been very forthright. He's been concerned for their soul. He says, I've acted honorably in all things. You understand that the things he's confessing he's done, he isn't a manner of speaking asking that it would continue. That part of their praying would be that he would continue to act honorably in all things with a clear conscience. I'm confident, he says, I've been teaching the truth, living the life, not perfectly, but honorably. You should listen to me. You should follow my example. But I know that every pastor is prone to wander, tempted to sin, in danger of falling, including me. Pray for me that I would keep on having a clear conscience and keep on acting honorably in all things. I don't want to be a hypocrite, he's saying, in teaching or living. I don't want to say one thing. And really think another. And I don't want to command one thing and secretly do another. How do we get pastors to have this kind of pastoral integrity? Well, you get what you pray for. We have to pray for them. We have to pray for God to raise them up. We have to pray for God to keep them. God to preserve them and protect them and guard them. When Robert Louis Stevenson, the story is told, was a boy, he once remarked to his mother, Mama, you can't be good without praying. How do you know, Robert, she asked. Because I've tried, he answered. Which brings to mind another story of a little boy, one who had been sent to his room because he had been bad. A short time later, he came out and he said to his mother, I've been thinking about what I did, and I said a prayer. That's fine, she said. If you ask God to make you good, he will help you. Oh, I didn't ask him to help make me good. I asked him to help you put up with me. (laughs) Now, I'll pray the Lord will help you to continue to put up with me if you will pray to the Lord that he will make me more like himself. And there's a long, slow process going on in that. The Apostle James cautions us here, I think, James 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if that's true, and it is, then how necessary is your prayer for us? Uh, In his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 7, Jesus prayed to the Father, Father, sanctify them, speaking of his people, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I can think of no better prayer for you to pray for me than that God would sanctify me in the truth, his word, which is truth. That God would set me apart in his truth, make me a godly man by his truth, teach me to know him, teach me to love him, teach me to enjoy him. Teach me to honor him. 
Teach me to love what he loves and hate what he hates. To love the truth and hate that which is false. To love what is good and hate what is evil. And so grant me by his spirit to live in light of the truth. I urge you to pray that for me. Says the early church father Gregory the Great. He who is required by the necessity of his position to speak the highest things is compelled by the same necessity to exemplify the highest things. To that end, prayer is the greatest gift that you could give the ministry of this pulpit. My, my life does not always match my words. I speak loftily from this pulpit and act so selfishly. If Paul needed prayer... I need your prayers. If the writer of the book of Hebrews needed prayer, I need your prayers. All spiritual leaders need your prayers. This is the pressing need, I think, of the hour. We've been hearing a lot about people in positions of power and authority, leadership in Hollywood and in news media and in government, failing in their personal or professional lives, failing to be worthy of respect, fail to live honorably, to have used their influence for personal gain or destructive ends, and then to lose their influence and face personal disgrace and bring injury to their families and their organizations. And that happens in the church too. We've had our own scandals and the church is not done having her scandals. The church always had in various ways. One of the commonest strategies in war is to do whatever you can to take out the opposing leadership. Because if you can do that, then you can introduce chaos and confusion and despondency into the ranks of the foot soldiers. Well, that has always been the strategy of the enemy. He seeks to take out leaders of churches and so introduce chaos and confusion and despondency in the body of Christ. And we should make no mistake, we are a people at war. We war not against flesh and blood. Our enemy are not human beings, but against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Some failures are reversible, recoverable, forgivable. Certainly, Peter, as you've heard me say time and again, denied the Lord three times publicly, and yet Jesus made him a leader in the church. And then as a leader in the church, Peter failed to live in line with the truth of the gospel when he wouldn't eat with certain Gentiles out of fear of certain Jews. And Paul in Galatians had to rebuke him to his face publicly and lay it on the pages of the Bible for all eternity. And yet Peter repented and he continued to serve and he penned two letters found in that same Bible before he was, as history suggests, crucified upside down in allegiance uh, to his Jesus. Yet by contrast, Judas failed, was unrepentant and unrecoverable. In Acts chapter 5, in the early days of the church, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit about some personal property that they were free to keep for themselves or free to sell and distribute the proceeds to the church. 
But what they did is they sold it, kept some for themselves, and pretended like they were giving it all to the church. And they are called out for lying to the Holy Spirit, and they were both struck dead so that the whole church should fear. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander, prominent men in the church, their names known, as Paul writes to Timothy, they had, he says, to be handed over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. And I simply bring these as reminders to us, uh, brothers and sisters, that we need to pray for one another. And you need to not fail to pray for your spiritual leaders that they might be sustained through God using your prayers to keep them from failing and to be recovered should they fail. Pray that our conscience will be clear. We'll proclaim the truth openly, straightforwardly, faithfully, with no ulterior motive, but the glory of God and the good of the people. And pray that we will live and minister in ways that are honorable and honoring to the Lord. So you see here something about pastoral humility I need to be prayed for, he says, and pastoral integrity, and then finally pastoral proximity. Forgive the, uh, the uh, attempt at rhyme. Pray for... Uh, shared life with your leaders. I mean, notice verse 19. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. You see, you see the heart there. He asked for a person he can be with them. I want, I want us to be together, he says. Now, we don't know where he was when he's writing this. We don't know why he's away. We don't know why he hasn't come back or what's preventing him from getting back sooner. He just says, please pray that I can come be with you, which is where I want to be. I want to be with my people. It sounds like a lot, a lot like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15. The Apostle Paul, beginning of verse 30 there, says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that... By God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. Pray, he says, that I could be delivered from unbelievers, that my service would be acceptable in the place that I am, but also that we could have a great reunion so that our joy would be full, so that we could enjoy being and and be mutually encouraging to one another. We all need local Leaders who know us, care about us, want to be with us, and for us to be with them. Leaders who will miss us when they are gone, and leaders who will miss us if we are gone. It's, uh, it's not too great a stretch to point out the troubling practice of some churches having pastors who aren't even present with their people, churches that use video screens to broadcast their services and I I don't mean what we've talked about here you know video in another room or audio so that nursery workers can hear what's going on while they're temporarily out or a parent who periodically steps out with a child no no but churches where you will never meet the pastor never know or be known by the pastor's 
the teachers, the elders, the deacons. Now listen, that's not a criticism of podcasting. Redeemer podcasts are sermons, if you didn't know that. People from all over the world, I do not know why or how they found us. But tens of thousands of people from all over the world over the course of a number of years find our podcast in places like Korea, North Korea, South Korea, Australia, tiny little out-of-the-way countries I've never heard of. I, I benefit tremendously from listening to the podcasts of, of godly, gifted preachers. It's a boon to my soul to have somebody preaching to me week in and week out because I'm here preaching to you week in and week out. I'm not, I'm not criticizing any of that. I'm just saying we do need more than that. That can't be our whole diet of uh, spiritual leadership and its ministry to us. It shouldn't be what pastors aspire ultimately to only. Um, listen, the best preachers you're listening to are preachers who are preaching Sunday by Sunday in their own congregation to people they know and people they enjoy fellowship and shared life with and the joy of being together in the worship of God and with their people, real people, people like you, people like me, people who need one another. And so I close this way uh, for, for you said the great Augustine to his people for you, I am Bishop, but with you, I am a Christian. The first is an office accepted, the second a grace received, one a danger, the other safety. If then I am gladder by far to be redeemed with you than I am to be placed over you, I shall, as the Lord commanded, be more completely your servant. So pray, pray that we would have more leaders in the church like that. On one of his visits to the continent of Europe, Spurgeon met an American minister there who said, I have long wished to see you, Mr. Spurgeon, and to put one or two simple questions to you. In our country, there are many opinions as to the secret of your great influence. Would you be good enough to give me your point of view? And after a moment's pause, Spurgeon replied, my people pray for me. I simply ask the same of you. Let's pray. Father, we need you and we know not how much. Bless you that you're long-suffering and patient with your children. You're determined to mature us and make us more like Jesus. You even teach us to pray. And give us a heart to call out to you in prayer. Make it so more and more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.